At the University of Waterloo, our work takes place on the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Our main campus is situated on the Haldeman Tract, the land granted to the Six Nations that includes six miles on each side of the Grand River. Since we recorded this episode in May 2021, non-Indigenous Canadians have been forced to reckon with some of the horrific actions of our past. Before we get into this episode, I want to encourage you to learn more about the true and full history of the land you live on and the people who lived there before you. And if you're an alumnus of Waterloo, I encourage you to learn more about the Haldeman Tract, the land that you likely studied and lived on as a student. There are some links in this episode description that might help you get started, and I hope you'll find new information in today's conversation too. Keep listening. I think one of the big things we're going to see is that, and I I think this is going to come more from the courts than the governments, but is the recognition and respect being given to Indigenous legal traditions. Brad Regeer was working at the turnkey desk when a friend stopped by holding an LSAT study guide. That's the first time he considered becoming a lawyer. A grandchild of a residential school survivor and a survivor himself of the 60s scoop, Brad has now worked in Indigenous law for more than 20 years. In fall 2020, he was named president of the Canadian Bar Association, the first Indigenous president in the organization's 124-year history. Brad is a member of the Peter Bellantine Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, and in this episode, you'll hear his conversation with Abby Olila, a current history student at Waterloo. They talk about how he reconnected with his identity and culture as a student, and what the future holds for Indigenous rights in Canada. Okay, well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're really thank excited you. to have you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Um, so when we when we talked earlier, you you spoke about growing up as part of the 60s scoop. Um, can you tell me how you reconnected later later in life with your identity and, and culture? Um you know, I, got, I was I was adopted at a very young age, but I knew that I was Indigenous. My adopted family didn't hide that from me. Uh, I knew some people who who would, was hidden from. Um, that's that's just a really bad idea, in my view. Uh, a lot of uh, problems occur when you do that. And but uh, but I always knew I had an uncle uh, in my adopted family who worked uh, his. His job is primarily working with Indigenous people, so there was some very, very small connection that way. Uh, but you know, I, I had friends who were my age, and they were Indigenous as well. But they were there; they were growing up in a in a non-Indigenous community, and I was just I was always struck at how many of us there were, and I kept running into them in school, and so you know, I. I I grew up in this non-Indigenous family, a uh, great family. I love them to bits. Um, but I, I know when I, I did college out in, here in Winnipeg, and then I, I went to Waterloo. And it probably was at Waterloo where something something was tweaked for me. Um, 
you know, we had, it was, it was 1990. There was a couple of, you know, pretty important things that happened in Canada. You had the, uh, the, the crisis in Oka with the, with the pines, you know, that really impacted me strongly. Uh, at the same time, of course, they were, there was the Meech Lake Accord and we had, uh, Elijah Harper, uh, an indigenous MLA here in Manitoba. And he, he said, no, he said he would not, he would not support, um, passing, uh, the Meech Lake Accord. Cause he said, you haven't done anything for indigenous people in this. And so he sat there in the Manitoba legislature by himself and he held that eagle feather and he said no repeatedly. <clears throat> and the Meech Lake Accord died. And I remember going to rallies at the legislature that summer. You know, it was a long, hot summer. There was a lot of disputes going on. And that probably was a couple of the most important events that really um, set me in that direction of going, I, I need to I need to learn a lot more about myself and where I came from and that kind of thing. And so, you know, at the time it was... It was sort of, uh, you know, trying to focus my studies in that area. But uh, I went back to Waterloo after that summer, and um, I was uh, I was actually able to get in contact with the uh, the local resource center, the Wichitaman Native Resource Center at that time. Uh, who uh, those uh, the people there helped me a lot, um, embraced me, uh, brought me into some. Um, some cultural groups there and while I was at Waterloo and it was great. And then when I came back from Waterloo, I, 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 uh, that's when I decided I, I would go to law school and, and, uh, that's, that's where I would use whatever talents I had. Um, that's where, that's where I was going to focus my studies and, um, uh, you know, met some more people and they made, you know, made suggestions that, Hey, you might be, you might be entitled to this. You might be entitled to that. You should look into this. And if you're interested in your family, um, uh, you might be able to, to find them, uh, and, and we can help you, we can help you look into this. And so I took the bump on it and, um, I was, uh, partway through, uh, my first year of law school out here at Manitoba and, uh, all of a sudden got the call on a Friday saying, we found your family because, uh, I knew, I knew, um, I knew what my last name was at birth and, uh, it was bear. And I knew that there was communities in Manitoba where that surname was very popular. And so, uh, you know, I, I but it didn't make a lot of sense to me because I knew that I was, I was Cree, but in these communities where I knew the name was popular were Ojibwe communities. So I was going, well, this just doesn't make sense to me. Of course, at the time I didn't realize that there was communities further North in Manitoba and into Saskatchewan, of course, where that name, that surname is also very common. And they, what they had done was, um, uh, they, the people who were looking for me knew that the surname was common further up North. And so they called around to a bunch of communities in Northern Manitoba, Northern Saskatchewan. And, and, um, uh, when they contacted the, the social service agency for Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation, I believe it was in Prince Albert. They said, "Well, that that name is common up in Sandy Bay, which is one of the one of the um, communities that makes up Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation." And so they called there, and that's when they that's when they uh, spoke to my aunt, uh, and they said, Here, "Here's a young man 
this was his name at birth. And my aunt just went, we've been looking for him for a long time. And so it was a pretty intense weekend where I spoke to, I, I, I lost count of the aunts and uncles and cousins. And then I got to speak to my grandparents. Um, and then finally on the Sunday, uh, they were able to put me in contact with my biological mother, uh, who at the time was living in Thompson, Manitoba, uh, which is, uh, probably nine. Yeah. It's probably 900 kilometers drive from Winnipeg North. And, uh, I spoke to her and then she spoke a bit and then she said, I'm going to call you back later. You have, uh, you have, uh, siblings. And so, um, she spoke to my two younger brothers, one of whom was actually in Winnipeg at that time. And they didn't, they knew nothing about me. They'd never heard about me. And my step siblings didn't really know about me either. Um, uh, and then eventually, you know, some years later, I met some further cousins who actually lived in Winnipeg and, uh, the two, my two cousins, uh, they remembered my mom being pregnant and then she was, cause she was living with them at the time here in Winnipeg and then she was gone. Uh, no baby came home and, and, and she was gone and, uh, and she didn't, and she, after she'd gone to the hospital, she didn't come back. And so, yeah, it was an, it was an intense weekend. I had a, I had a contracts law midterm on the Monday morning. <laughs> oh went man, into, bad timing. Yeah, yeah. I went into my, uh, professor's, uh, office in the morning and I said, uh, Professor Osborne, I, um, this is what happened to me this weekend. I have not studied even five minutes. Um, so I hope you'll take that into account when I bomb this exam. And he just went, you're not writing the exam. I'm going to set a new exam for you a week from now. Go home, get some sleep. Uh, and to this, to, uh, to this day, I will get inquiries every so often from, from Professor Osborne, uh, asking me how my family is over the years I'd run into him. He has since moved back to New Zealand. And when I became CBA president last September, an email out of the blue arrived from, from him again, asking uh, how I was and how my family was and, and reminding me about that conversation him and I had way back in, in the winter of 1994. Those are the, those are the professors that really make a difference that you really remember. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible story. It was pretty overwhelming. Yeah, I can't imagine. Shifting gears a little bit then, you mentioned law school quite a bit. What what drew you to the law profession? And then like later to the leadership role you, you hold today? Um, <clears throat> interesting question. Never, ever did I think that I would be a lawyer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, wa I wanted to be a firefighter because I used to watch the show Emergency. Uh, when I was a kid back in the seventies. And in fact, my wife bought me the full DVD set for Christmas this year. Um, uh, but, uh, because I have, cause I have corrective lenses, uh, there was not chance I was going to be a firefighter back in the 1980s. So, um, while I was at Waterloo, I was doing, uh, primarily focused on history and then doing some geography because I wanted to be a teacher, but, uh, trying to get into teachers colleges in Ontario was, uh, e even out here in Manitoba, it was, you were on massive waiting lists for such a small number of spots. And so I was trying to figure out what am I, what am I going to do? And I think it was in this, in the summer of 1992 and I was working at the turnkey desk in the campus center and, uh, my, my friend Constantine, 
uh, came up and he had the, he had the law school application test booklet. And, uh, he said he was going to write the LSAT test and he was going to be a lawyer. And it was a slow, I think it was, it was a Saturday or something. So it was pretty slow. So I just asked if I could take a look at it and I did. And when I started reading about, you know, here's the, here's the skills that you will develop as a lawyer. Um, I thought, you know, this is, this is something I can, I can use to work in the area I wanted, which is, which is in the area of indigenous rights, indigenous legal issues, um, working for indigenous peoples. And so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll give it a, I'll give it a chance. Uh, you know, um, signed up to write the test, paid my 50 bucks or whatever it was at the time and, uh, and wrote it at a, <clears throat> a good friend. Uh, she wrote it at the same time. Uh, I can remember that morning setting, but four alarms to make sure I didn't sleep in. Uh, and then, uh, wrote the exam and, um, uh, got my marks back a short time later and, uh, they were pretty decent marks. I was pretty, I was pretty happy. Um, and so I started applying to some law schools. Um, I, I got into a few, um, Manitoba being one of them. And I, uh, my, my adopted father was not doing well at the time physically. And so I thought I should, I should go home. <clears throat> so I went home and, um, uh, did, did law at, uh, University of Manitoba. But, uh, but, you know, I, I, I would give that plug for Waterloo and that I had, I had some great professors who gave me great leeway in terms of the things I wanted to study. Um, and I really was able to focus a lot of what I was doing in terms of indigenous issues and indigenous legal issues while at Waterloo. So, and I, I know that has, that has developed since, since I was there 20 some years ago. Uh, but, but certainly that helped, uh, push, keep pushing me down that path. Yeah. The history department at Waterloo is really great for, for making space for people to pursue their own interests for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, at the time I had, uh, professor Patterson, um, and, uh, indigenous, uh, history was, uh, one of, one of his areas of specialty. So. What about the role you have now? What made you want to pursue this path? Um, I'd been a member of the Canadian Bar Association since I was, uh, since I finished law school. Um, you know, I always found a lot of value in it. Uh, um, uh, great organization uh, from coast to coast to coast representing uh, lawyers and judges, law students. And I remember... I had gotten involved with, uh, so, so the Bar Association has what's called sections and they're, 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 they're uh, primarily groups within the association that deal with substantive law, though there are other, there are other sections that deal um, uh, not substantive law, but for example, young lawyers or um, uh, we have a judges section, that kind of thing. And I got involved with the Aboriginal law section of the Manitoba branch of the, of the CBA. And I was encouraged by, um, uh, one of the partners at the firm I was at at the time to, to do so. And as I was, as I became involved with the provincial branch, then all of a sudden I became involved with, uh, the national, um, the national section. Um, and then I was encouraged to run for the provincial branch, uh, council. 
And that's sort of where it all started. And uh, we, we always have jokes within the association about CBA junkies, people who get involved with leadership and then just can't walk away. You know, I just, I just seem to keep moving forward, eventually becoming president of the Manitoba branch in 2015, which I did for two years. Uh, there's a whole story on that because normally it would have only been one, but, uh, and then back in, um, uh, and as, as branch president, I also served on the national board and then I, I kind of took a year off, uh, uh, just as I had uh, switched firms and then I ran um, for the national board because we had done a whole uh, change to our governance system nationally. And I got onto the national board and thought, you know, I I, I think I can do something here. I, I, I think I can lead this organization. And so I, I decided to throw my hat in. Um, you you run for the vice president position and then you automatically become president after you've been vice president. And so uh, in 2018, I decided to throw my hat in and uh, I, I won the election. And um, yeah, here I am, three months to go. <laughs> I've I done nine months, nine months under my belt, three months to go. And, uh, you know, it's not the year that I was certainly expecting, but I, I still feel I've been able to um, have some influence. I've, um, I've made uh, the CBA's uh, implementation plan for, you know, in terms of, uh, truth and reconciliation issues as one of my main priorities. I've, I've, I've been doing my own podcasts on the uh, TRC calls to action. And, um, you know, when it, one of the things is uh, pushing the federal government to make more appointments of indigenous peoples, uh, black and people of color to uh, federally appointed um, judicial positions. That's um, what we need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We need an indigenous judge in the Supreme Court of Canada. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, on that note, what what legal developments do you think are on the horizon for Indigenous rights in Canada? Like, what steps towards reconciliation do you anticipate happening in the near future? Or, or what would you like to see happen? I think one of the big things we're going to see is that, <clears throat> and I, I think this is going to come more from the courts than the governments, but is the recognition and respect being given to indigenous legal traditions. Uh, there's always talk about how Canada is a um, is a legal system that's based on two legal systems: the British common law and the French civil law. And we've actually had uh, decisions uh, since Canada was created if not before, where we've had judicial decisions recognizing uh, indigenous legal traditions. You're going way back to, was it 18, what was the case around 1870, 1867, something like that, uh, where um, an Aboriginal customary marriage was recognized. And it was actually happened out here in Manitoba. The guy, a fur trader came in and as was common at the time, the fur trader would um, would would marry a local indigenous woman, um, often the daughter of the chief or someone like that, in order to cement that relationship. Um, and they would go through uh, a customary marriage, 
<clears throat> and in this case, the guy, you know, he did that. They had kids. And then he said, well, I've got to go travel to Montreal. You know, I'll see you next year when I'm, you know, because it, it, back then it wasn't you just jumped on a plane. You had to travel quite far and by by boat most most often. And he uh, he really didn't have much intention of going back to Manitoba. He met a woman in Montreal. They got married. And the, the indigenous woman in Manitoba went, um, I, I think it did, did the man pass away? And then she said, I'm entitled to the estate. And it went through, uh, went through the courts and the courts said, uh, his, his second marriage to the woman in Montreal was, was not valid because he was already married <clears throat> and the customary marriage was viewed as valid in, uh, I think it was in the nineties. There was an insurance case out of BC where, um, a young man had been customarily adopted <clears throat> in the First Nation community. And then he uh, he was killed in a car crash. Uh, and um, the insurance was supposed to pay out to his uh, next of kin. And the, the adopted parents who were Indigenous uh, said, well, we, we adopted him. And they said, well, did you go through Child and Family Services and all that through the province? And they went, no, it was, it was customarily... And it went to court and the court went customary adoptions just as valid as uh, adopting through the provincial system. And uh, the insurance company had to pay the proceeds to the to the parents. And so those are just some examples of of recognizing that that Canada's actually got three legal traditions. It's also got indigenous legal traditions. And uh, the the the, the uh, Law Reform Commission of Canada did a study on this, uh, which was done by Professor John Burroughs, who is at the University of Victoria. He is he is probably one of the thought leaders in the area on this. Um, I I'm very proud to have uh, given him. He was one of two um, people to receive the President's Award from me this year. Oh, that's really uh, cool. Yeah, he's done a great book on Indigenous legal traditions. <clears throat> when he teaches, he um, he utilizes uh, legends and stories, uh, which is which is sort of part, you know, and, and 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 you can't just say, well, there is one indigenous legal tradition because there's so many different indigenous communities in Canada. But but um, I, I I think that is probably one of the next big things we're going to see. Uh, I, but I also, you know, uh, the whole theme of reconciliation. Um, I know that the judiciary is very, very interested in what this, how this plays out, how, how they deal with the whole concept of reconciliation when there is a dispute between Indigenous peoples and, and, and the Crown or Indigenous peoples and industry, or even amongst Indigenous peoples, or, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, I mean, all times are interesting, but, but in terms of what I do, it's a very interesting time because we are seeing the whole concept of reconciliation, um, move more and more and more into so many areas of the law. Uh, we've got law societies who are actively trying to do what they can on reconciliation. Certainly the, the Canadian Bar Association as an av advocacy group for lawyers, um, is making that a priority, but, but the judiciary, um, I, I think they're hungry to learn more. Uh, I, we, this was probably five years ago. We had a, a one day session 
um, out at um, uh, Turtle Lodge at Seguin, which is uh, probably an hour and a half or so outside of Winnipeg. And uh, it was a joint uh, Bar Association Law Society session. And the bus was full. <clears throat> and we went out there and spent the day out there. And it was great. We had we had judges who came along. We had retired judges who came along who who want to learn more about Indigenous legal traditions, want to learn more about reconciliation. I I, I really think those are going to be some of the big things. I mean, they already are, but they're going to be some of the big things we're going to see coming out of out of the courts. I mean, the, the federal government just announced that they were providing funding to a bunch of communities to work on their, uh, you know, uh, no, I don't like to say developing, but enhancing their Indigenous legal traditions. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. So one, one Indigenous land, land rights case that's uh, close to home, literally, <laughs> for alumni is the Six Nations claim to the Holloman Tract. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on what the future holds for that case. Well, <clears throat> Six Nations is owed a lot. Um, that was a sacred promise made by the crown. Uh, you know, the a lot of the traditional territory, of course, of uh, of uh, the people of Co the Confederacy, of course, was along the south sides of uh, Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. Um, you know, and it extended beyond that too. But, um, you know, a large number of those the people from those nations um saw the british crown as their ally the british crown certainly saw them in fact if it hadn't been for them i'm not sure uh if if canada <laughs> would have would have been part of the commonwealth uh you know we might we might just be part of the united states at this point in time uh and so the, a, a promise was made um, and, and, uh, they were to be given, uh, sorry, I can't remember how many miles on each side of the six miles deep on each side, on each side of the, of the grand river from Lake Erie to where, uh, to the, to the headwaters, um, that encompasses not just all of Brantford, but all of Cambridge, all of Kitchener, all of Waterloo, all of Elmira, uh, Elora, you know, all of these towns are completely encompassed within within that tract of land. Uh, and that is, that is prime fertile farming, uh, land. Um, and so, you know, when you six nations, uh, reserve is, is, you know, probably one of the bigger reserves in Canada currently, but it is a tiny, like it's, it's such a tiny amount of what the Haldeman tract was supposed to be. And there's, there's compensation owed. Um, uh, from the government of Canada and the government of Ontario. Um, and <clears throat> my thought would be municipalities. And, and I don't know what's happened since I've left Waterloo. I mean, certainly, you know, I've, I've seen the recognition at the university of Waterloo, but you know, the, the entire Waterloo campus is <laughs> encompassed within that, uh, you know, uh, Wilfrid Laurier, um, uh, you know, it, it's, there needs to be a recognition that this is indigenous land um, that people are on. And there's got to be a reckoning for that. There's got to be a reconciliation of that because there hasn't been there. There hasn't been to date. 
Yeah, something something beyond land acknowledgments. Yeah. Which is uh, we do it a lot, especially on university campuses, but it's it's not enough. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this was a great conversation. I learned so much. Um, thanks again for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights. Um, where can the audience find your podcast? Uh, so there is a, a channel called the Every Lawyer. Um, okay. <clears throat> you have to go in there, and uh, there it, it's not just it, it's all the podcasts from um, uh, by the CBA presidents. So uh, Vivian Salmon and Ray Adlington, who were presidents before me, theirs are in there as well. So you'll have to look specifically for mine. But uh, you can find it on wherever you listen, like to listen to your podcast. Just type in the Every Lawyer. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you, Abigail. Chimigwich. All right. Take care. You too. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow, subscribe, like, whatever your podcast player lets you do. And if you want to meet more alumni, check out the latest issue of Waterloo Magazine. Inside, you can find articles and videos about alumni who embody resilience, including Brad. You can find the digital issue at uwaterloo.ca slash magazine. Season two of Uncharted Warriors in the World is written and produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. This episode was also written and hosted by Abby Olila, one of our amazing co-op students. Carlos Saavedra is our editor. Carlos and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.